0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today, we've got two Indigenous authors on the pod who coincidentally make the same bleakly wry observation that it's a miracle there are any Indigenous people here at all in the Americas. In a bit, we'll hear about the book Probably Ruby, which is about an Indigenous baby who gets raised by a white family and gets into all the baggage that affords But first, The Only Good Indians is a book by Stephen Graham Jones, who's a member of the Blackfeet Nation. He dabbles mostly in horror, and in this interview with NPR's Ari Shapiro, he talks about how he feels like the mainstream literati want to pigeonhole native writers into writing, you know, a certain type of literary fiction. But he gives a pretty fascinating argument as to why he likes to play in the genres, horror in
1: particular. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
2: Stephen Graham Jones writes horror novels, and his latest starts with a provocative reworking of an old saying. The title is The Only Good Indians.
3: The Only Good Indians are dead Indians from, you know, as ascribed to Teddy Roosevelt back in the 19th century. But... It was kind of the bumper sticker that would have been on horses if horses had bumper stickers back then.
2: Jones is a member of the Blackfeet Nation, and in this book, a group of friends violates a tradition on the reservation, and a vengeful spirit haunts them to the bloody end. I began by asking Stephen Graham Jones about the title, why he wanted to explore the idea of good Indians.
3: I wanted to interrogate what it means to even be a good Indian in 2020, you know? It doesn't mean you know, subscribing to old ways Does it mean adopting other ways? How do you navigate the world when success in one arena is failure in another? And it turns out there's not a single way to be a good Indian. There's 7 million ways to be a good Indian. Except
2: in this book, there's a very clear way to be a bad one. And it results in this horror story of like vengeance,
3: right? <laughs> it does. Yeah. Yeah. These guys overstep their boundaries.
2: Tell us about that initial trespass. I mean, what is the violation here?
3: These four hunters, these four elk hunters on the last day of their elk hunt, they kind of consider that all bets are off and they sneak into the elder section, which is saved for, the, you know, the elders of the of the tribe to hunt so they can have access to easier elk. And they sneak into the elder section and shoot a lot more elk than they need.
2: So what is it about this trespass of hunting elk in the section that is reserved for the elders and shooting more elk than you need that you think makes such a powerful, instigating
3: event? I think, I mean, you're basically taking food off of elders' plates. And that, Mm -hmm. to me, is no way to be part of a community, of course.
2: What made you want to center this around the spirit of the elk?
3: You know, I think the reason elk matter to me, it's Whenever I take an elk or I'm part of a hunting party that takes an elk, I feel like there's an ethical obligation to that animal to treat it with respect. And I feel that, I feel that to every animal that I might take out in the field, of course, but um, generally we're out after elk. And so, you know, if I were a rabbit hunter, then maybe this would be a novel about rabbits, you know, but I mostly go after elk. So this turned out to be an elk novel.
2: Is any of this an exorcism of your own guilt for elk that you've killed in your life and felt like you didn't do justice to?
3: A little bit, yeah. In 2008, I moved from Texas to Colorado, and an elk I had um, got the previous year was—I still had some of her meat in the freezer— and when I moved away, I had to go door to door and give the elk away to my neighbors because I couldn't transport it, you know, up to Colorado.
2: And oh, well, that scene is exactly in this novel. It totally is. I mean, yeah. like that's a direct, yeah, yeah. Wow.
3: And I felt so guilty about that because I had told her when I shot her that I'm, um, I'm sorry this had to happen, but I'm gonna make use of you. You're gonna, you're gonna do good for me and my kids, you know.
2: But the food wasn't put to waste. You did give it to people who I'm, I'm trying to assuage your guilt, I guess. Yeah. But like, it sounds like you did the responsible thing.
3: I tried I tried to I just I don't know what they did with the elk you know hopefully they all ate it and had wonderful meals and she just cycled back into the into the herd you know
2: among the various stories of native experience what do you think a horror story adds to the mix
3: you know um the marketplace or the critical establishment they kind of want american indian fiction or literature to stay close to what's considered like the main trunk of of literature, I guess. Where we we don't get to go out on the branches and play in science fiction and fantasy and horror. Mm. And I think it's really important for us to run out on all the skinny branches we can and <laughs> cl- claim what claim whatever we want, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, what is it about this particular skinny branch that you think bears fruit that another branch might not?
3: You know, for me, the slasher is a wonderful model of I mean, it's a wonderful thing to believe in, really. It's wish fulfillment. Um mm. The spirit of vengeance rising to punish the guilty, that presupposes a world in which evil is punished, and which is to say it presupposes a fair world. And that's not the world we live in, but I really like to engage slashers because they let me believe in that world for just a little bit.
2: The book has three sections. Um, Section two is called Sweat Lodge Massacre, so people can figure out for themselves how it's going to end. Uh, and one of the characters says, nobody ever dies in a sweat, not even the elders. It's about the safest place in the Indian world. So how mm-hmm. much of a transgression is it for you as an author to turn this sweat lodge into a bloodbath?
3: It It, it is a little bit transgressive. At the same time, though, I think that, I mean, if, if any people who subscribe to traditional ways like call foul on me, then I think that's good. I think if you're making the traditional's nervous then you're doing the right thing as an artist you know
2: that's so interesting because you're saying it's good to make people who follow tradition nervous but at the same time this is a book in which people who violate tradition get punished
3: correct yeah yeah so there's value in the tradition for sure it's just if we lock tradition in place and freeze dry it then that's the first step of killing it or dismissing it you know it has to Mm. adapt and change which is why why in that sweat they're doing a sweat with in their own ways they're not singing the old songs they're not um doing it mechanically how it's supposed to be done you know
2: this brings us back to the question we started with of what makes a good indian is it like blind adherence to <laughs> tradition or is it interrogation of tradition or is it just a of tradition
3: i think it's just charting your own like um threshold for success and being happy really it's just you know really it's just existing we're not supposed to be around anymore we were supposed to be erased in the 19th century, but here we are going strong. So I think if you're just around, then hmm. you might be a good Indian.
2: Stephen Graham Jones, I really appreciate your talking with us. Thanks for having me. It was an honor to be here. His new novel is called The Only Good Indians.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Live Right, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever
1: books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
0: The author, Lisa Bird Wilson, is part Indigenous, like her main character, Ruby, in her new book, Probably Ruby. And in this interview with Here and now Celeste Headley, she makes this important point, that the violent history of the Indigenous people, that's not a burden just for Indigenous people to carry. It's all of our history, and we all gotta own it.
4: A young Canadian woman gets pregnant in the 1970s, but is forced to give the child up for adoption, partly because she's an unmarried teen, but also because the father is a young indigenous man. Her white adoptive parents try to keep her as far as possible from her indigenous roots. And that's where the novel Probably Ruby begins. It follows Ruby as she comes to term with her heritage, her self-destructive tendencies, and her search for her family. Author Lisa Bird Wilson joins us now, and congratulations on the novel.
5: Oh thank you. Can say hello. So let's begin with with
4: you, since there are some similarities. You are not Ruby, <laughs> but you are Metis like uh, from Saskatchewan, so is Ruby. And she spends her life from a very young age trying to figure out who she is. About a year ago, you published an article in the Globe and Mail that was called I Found My Ancestors in the 1901 Census. It was a tangible reminder of colonialism's impact. Can you talk a little bit about the search, what it means to search for one's ancestors?
5: So, you know, as an Indigenous adoptee myself, I share that with Ruby, right? So we were both adopted as infants into white families and, you know, really disconnected from our roots and our ancestors and our family and that sense of, you know, where we came from and how we belong. And so I wanted to have this fictional character, this contemporary embodiment of all of those colonial, violent histories that are part of Indigenous people's past and histories, I think for myself, coming to an understanding in my early 20s that I was not alone in this, that this is a story that I share with at least 20,000 other Indigenous adoptees from Canada And it's part of this process of assimilation, you know, that's been going on for centuries for Indigenous people. We sort of come to this shorthand way of talking about it. We call it the Sixties Scoop, which is a bit of an umbrella term for what happened across four decades of sending Indigenous kids into non-Indigenous homes to be adopted or fostered to extend that agenda of assimilation that started with the residential schools And it really isolated Indigenous kids into these white communities where you felt like you were the only one. And so I think it's really important for me in the book to demonstrate to other Indigenous adoptees and to people in general that we were isolated on purpose and that there was a myth somehow that we had been, you know, saved from troubled. Native parents, Hmm. and that we were not loved or wanted by our communities, which isn't true. And so, you know, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to show that, that Ruby is loved and she's wanted. And I tried to show the way that her birth mother is so lovingly wanting to imprint Ruby on herself, but also imprint herself on Ruby. Um, So there's a part in the book where she takes off her pajamas and she takes off the baby's clothes and she just lays down with her and just has that connection with her because she knows this baby's going to be taken from her. You have chosen to focus
4: through a whole series of, of vignettes. They're chapters of the book that focus sometimes on different members of Ruby's family, different characters in her life, ranging for decades, from 1950 almost to the present. You've chosen to focus on the after effects of these things. What happens after her grandparents experienced the the Canadian schools for uh, Native children, what happens after the young mother is sent away because she's become pregnant as a as a teenager?
5: Why the focus on the aftershocks? You know, the, it's the aftershocks that impact us today, right? There's not anybody on this land who is Indigenous who doesn't have that history and that colonial violence in their past and it's just a miracle that we're we're even here at all but the other part of that that I want to make sure is really clear is that this is also our shared history on this land so this isn't the burden and the history for Indigenous people only this is all of our history this is what has brought us to where we are today There are connections
4: in in the book with some of the recent really horrifying headlines that have come out about Canada's history with residential schools. Um, Both of Ruby's grandparents uh, were sent to residential schools and clearly endured some um, abusive situations. I wonder what you think of all of these headlines that have come out recently about residential schools. For the Indigenous people of of Canada, is the new information helpful? Is getting the word out helpful in any
5: way? You know, those little unmarked graves that have been discovered or rediscovered or relocated, right? Because our communities and our grandparents and our people who went to those schools understood that those grave sites were there, that Indigenous kids died, you know, I think it raises a really difficult and painful past and reality, but it's not a surprise. And just a fraction of the schools have been looked at, so that gives you a sense of Mm -hmm. foreboding of what's going to come. When I think about you know, the 60s scoop, I think about the child welfare situation for Indigenous kids that's been going on for decades, I can very clearly see the line that goes from today all the way back into the residential schools and see how that same agenda, you know, has been driving these policies and these relationships and this systemic discrimination all along. And it's that idea of you know, really seeing Indigenous people through a lens of white middle-class values that under and devalue Indigenous culture, Indigenous ways of knowing. And I, I think that Ruby, for me, is trying to just embody that contemporary view of what that's like to be an Indigenous person today and be dragging around all this history, even though Ruby ends up not necessarily knowing all of that. Um, So the reader knows more about Ruby and this history and this background than Ruby ever really comes to know in the book, but it's still there. And we talk about intergenerational trauma and we talk about blood memory and that's part of it, right? It's having that hard history and that hard background, but it's also, I think, really important for us to remember that that blood memory is also Indigenous joy. It's also about our ancestors, our place on the land, our cultures, our languages. It's the good parts of our history as well. And I think that we have to remind ourselves of that. You know, that's a really important aspect of the history that we also take forward with us.
4: So there's also a strong thread of the importance of autonomy throughout the book, not just with her grandparents that were taken to residential schools, not just with how Ruby grapples with being kept away from her own history and heritage, but there's also the chapter that focuses on Ruby's birth mother, who is a young, unmarried teen, as I mentioned, a a white girl who is sent away to a boarding house for young unmarried girls. Against her will, she tries to run away. That, that entire chapter is just heartbreaking. And so one of the ripples that this book seems to be tracing is how casually autonomy is taken away and how the significant impacts of that that travel through generations when you take away someone's freedom and, and their choice. In this book, did you Want to also create the other side of that, valuing empowerment and making sure that one really grasps your choices when you have the when you have options,
5: I think you know, there is very much that sense of fighting back in the book. So you you know mm-hmm. you mentioned grace and the ways that she asserts herself, like she gets the notion from one of the other girls in the home that maybe they can't make her do this and <laughs> maybe she can keep this baby. So she holds on to the baby for two weeks after it's born and they don't know what to do. Like they're just flabbergasted by this <laughs> this girl who literally just won't let the baby go. You know, that's Grace trying to sort of fight back and assert herself that way. But when I think about Ruby as a character and she's got this big personality and she's got this attitude... I think somewhere in the book she thinks or says it's only worth it if it goes too far. Like she's just a lot, right? Mm -hmm. She's big, she's bold. (laughs) Um,
4: She's a
5: lot, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and she has this great big laugh. And so she takes that laugh and she uses it in a whole bunch of ways. It protects her, she covers up her pain with it. But I think it also emboldens her. And I think that that's really important that it drives her forward and... For me, in so many ways, I found that Ruby's laugh really emboldened me. So as Ruby's Mm. creator, I was made more powerful and more bold about it by being able to use that laugh because it allowed Ruby to take off for me as a character and to really be able to go with her in so many ways instead of trying to control her. When I look back at it now, I can see how laughter and humor is so important to Indigenous cultures and to Indigenous people. Laughter has become this really important tool in our survival. So that laugh, to me, is doing a lot of things. It's either laugh or cry
4: sometimes, right? Yeah. (laughs) That is author Lisa Bird Wilson on her poignant new novel, Probably Ruby. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time. And again, congratulations. Mm,
5: Marcy, thank you.
0: And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and Naina Rao and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Hafsa Fatima, Melissa Gray, Devin Schwartz, Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, Eliza Dennis, Tinbi Ermias, Emiko Tamagawa, Fatma Tanis, Jolie Myers, Mallory Yu, Elena Burnett, Karen Miller-Medson, and Jill Ryan. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.